1. Charter Street, Past and Present The truth of the rather trite saying that half the world knows not how the other half lives is so generally acknowledged that ignorance of certain phases of life in our city can be pleaded with equanimity by the vast majority of us. We do not take the trouble to inquire what is going on in circles very far below us, and are as little acquainted with the existence led by the poverty-stricken or the vicious in our back streets and courts, as if a great gulf divided us. Their ways are not our ways, and it is only when the light shed by policial or other authority is turned upon this hidden underworld that we see aught of its nature. But this light is in many respects a false one, as it illuminates but the more salient features and belongings of the scene it reveals, leaving in greater darkness much that is important and characteristic. We accept the revelation given, and do not care to venture beyond the circle marked out by this artificial guide, for we are as little fearful of prying too deeply into the secret of the minority that is at times so troublesome and dangerous. In spite of all this, the maxim that has been applied to the highest class is applicable to the lowest. You may keep this minority out of sight and out of mind, but it is tenacious of life, and is one of the estates of the realm. Being so, it is worth examining curiously, and from the knowledge gained by temporary association with what is termed low life, I may be able to give some idea of what is transpiring even now in our midst among the outcasts and pariahs of the community. How the association has been formed matters not, save that it had its present purpose in view, and was not called into being by idle curiosity or senseless intrusion. Piloted by one who has returned but recently from penal servitude, or, as he would say, from doing a seven stretch, I sank my identity for a time, and gained an insight into crooked life, which is at once interesting and novel. I must first explain that in Manchester, there are four districts in which are located our criminal population, which may be enumerated as Charter Street, part of Deansgate, Ancoats and Gaythorne. The first named is bounded by a portion of Rochdale Road, Angel Street, Crown Lane, part of Red Bank, Bessex Row, Long Millgate and a number of streets leading up to Smithfield Market. This is the headquarters, practically, of the thieving fraternity, and with it I will first deal leaving a description of the other districts to a future article. My guide, keeping his appointment in Long Millgate with marvellous punctuality, we commenced our wanderings into what was to me an entirely unknown locality about ten o'clock at night. We struck off at once in the direction of Charter Street, and on the way I was entertained with a long and querulous complaint on the bad state of business, which is worth reproducing. It was to the old tune of Times Was Then, and contained a vast amount of information as to the former state of affairs at a period not so very far distant. He remembered, seven or eight years ago, how the street, Charter Street, was just as it should be, and what could be done in spite of all the D's, detective police, in the city. In the middle of the day, from fifty to a hundred men, known thieves every one of them, could be seen loitering at corners, pattering away in groups of their doings on their various lays, and laying plans for their next work. If the face of a known constable in plain clothes showed itself at a corner, they were off into entries and houses in a second, and the street would be as deserted as if no crowd had been in it. In at the front door and out at the back, over the yard walls as quick as fear could make them scramble, 
for each one knew he might have been spotted for some little job he had done, and it would not be worthwhile to wait and be lagged. Not that they went always quietly, for the street had weapons of its own, and when a rescue was attempted it fared ill with the officers. In many a house was kept hidden a supply of stones, and these were used with great effect. Before the disturbance not half a dozen could have been found on the roadway, but when all was over they could be counted by the hundred. Many a hard fight was waged with the police, who did not always come off without serious hurt. Joe Hyde then kept the London Tavern, which was recognised as the great place of resort of crossmen, thieves, from all parts of the country, and there the cutest of the fraternity most did congregate. There were men who could pass muster in a crowd, and were well dressed, and had plenty of ready coin to spend. Why, I've seen, suddenly my companion breaks out, a dozen of them playing cards all night, and the table covered with sovereigns, five pound a corner, and all paid up at the finish. We could manage it all right then, and come direct to the street, but now we have to go outside, anywhere where we can get a place, for we should get hauled up sharp if we went to old quarters. Then there was Teddy and Bob Butterworth's, but they've got a ten and twelve stretch while I've been away. They could sleep twenty or thirty of us every night, and we put up there as nice as could be. We used to drop nearly all the stuff at Bob MacFarlane's, and a good fence, receiver, he was then. Some went to Patsy Reardon's, but he's dead, and his old woman is doing time for taking in some two or three hundred watches from the guns, pickpockets. One-armed Kitty and Cabbage Ann are still here, but it's a hot shop now to work in. Fencing isn't half what it was before the act, and getting watches even isn't worth the trouble. You can't place half of them, and when you do, it's but a trifle. I might do a bit of ale and portering, working and thieving, but not in Manchester. All the old uns are gone away, and everything's changed for the bad. This was the burden of the complaint, and it is true that the Habitual Criminals Act, generally known to the profession as the Act, or the New Act, has crippled the extensive operation of convicts immensely. Formerly, the line that divided the thief proper from the working men and hawkers on the one hand, and vagrants on the other, was clearly defined, but now it can no longer be traced. Thieving alone is too hazardous, and as my experienced friend put it, ale and portering is considered most profitable. A little bit of work, hawking or otherwise, with a spice of thieving, pays well, and can be pursued with impunity for a time. There are very few persons at the present time who subsist entirely on the proceeds of continual and systematic theft. By the time I had been put in possession of these facts, we had got well into the street, and a number of suspicious-looking men and youths could be seen standing at the corners near the public houses that are pretty thickly scattered about the neighbourhood. They were slovenly dressed and had a listless, heavy look about them, that gave an idea of mental and bodily depression. We looked into several liquor vaults, and in most of them the counterparts of the men outside were drinking. They were not particularly noisy, though their talk was coarse and brutal, as I of course anticipated. They were of the usual rough type, and were as good specimens as could be picked out of any of our large jails. They seemed to have no object in drinking, save to while away the time, and many sat smoking on the low wooden seats without joining in the conversation or exhibiting sociability in any way. They were content with their position in the glare and warmth of the gaslight, and the stolid, unintelligent gaze they turned on their companions was as purposeless as can be imagined. 
Thinking it as well to follow suit in the drinking, we entered a more pretentious house than we had yet seen, and after passing a long well-lighted bar with a spacious counter that would have accommodated some fifty persons, we gained a small room leading out of an adjoining passage. It was a decently furnished, snug smoke-room, and in it were four men engaged in a subdued conversation, which they broke off as soon as we entered. Some money was lying on the table, and one of them was about to gather it up, when my companion made use of some back-slang, which I could not comprehend, and they resumed their task of apparently dividing the money. Each man eventually got a couple of sovereigns, and some loose silver that was left spent in glasses of whisky. They were more respectable in appearance, and their talk was less slangy than the men I had seen in the other drinking places, but all of them had been convicted of felony, and one, a little stumpy man with a face bespeaking low cunning, was just out on ticket. With a convict's carelessness, he was again associating with his old companions, in spite of the risk of being sent back to finish his time. Two of the others were strangers, but as I learned from scraps of conversation, they had done the boat, the slang term for the now abolished system of transportation, from London. They had only been in the town a few days, and were living out in the direction of Queen's Road, as they would not trust themselves in the lodging-houses of the street, where they might be recognised and watched by the slops, police. We had only time to drink our liquor hastily, for it was eleven o'clock and we were soon out into the street again. At the corner were standing a couple of men, whom I identified as belonging to our local detective force, and as they moved towards us, the cockney strangers broke away from our group, and walked rapidly across the street. I felt inclined to follow, but was pulled back by my guide, and turning sharply round, we stepped into a dark narrow entry, and with a sense of utter helplessness, I stumbled along as best I could, the ground being rough and uneven, and not a ray of light visible to show whither I was going. I nearly came to grief several times, in treacherous puddles that had collected in stray holes, and it was only by touching either wall with my outstretched hands that I could progress at all. Suddenly I found myself out in the open air, in what was evidently a back court, but the yard was so small and the night so dark that I could see no passage by which we could make our way out. "'We mustn't be seen,' said my faithful convict, and stepping cautiously to the door of one of the houses, he rapped quietly but distinctly. The effect was anything but encouraging, for a dog inside gave tongue immediately, and to judge from the energy with which he flew to the door, he would have been a ferocious customer to deal with. It appeared as if he would get at us, and as we could hear someone stirring in the room, we beat a rapid retreat. "'Follow me sharp,' was all the instruction I got, and we were again off in the darkness, through such a devious maze of courts and passages, that I wondered what particular part of the city we should arrive at. We got out safely, albeit I was bruised and dirty, from falling against such trifling obstacles as the corners of walls and a few broken-down steps, and to my surprise we were in Charter Street. All was quiet, and we passed over and entered one of the houses, which I was told was the begging ken. End of part one.